0: Welcome to Thesis, a podcast about trends in higher education systems in international spheres, exploring the field of higher education across the world. I'm your host, Kelly Davis. Today, we are discussing the capacity for first-generation students in Ghana and Zanzibar, Tanzania, to hustle. We are joined by Dr. Millicent Ajay, Director of Diversity and International Programs and Leadership Lecturer at Ashesi University in Ghana, and Dr. Emily Markovich Morris, a fellow at the Brookings Institution Center for Universal Education. Emily and Millicent, who met during their Ph.D. program in Comparative and International Development Education at the University of Minnesota, co-authored a thought-provoking paper titled, First Generation Students Navigating Educational Aspirations in Zanzibar and Ghana, where they developed Dr. Ajay's concept of hustle for first-generation students in the Global South context. Millicent uses a life story methodology with first-generation university students studying in Ghana, and Emily uses popular theater and storytelling with first-generation secondary school students from rural Zanzibar.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Thesis. I am joined today by Dr. Millicent Jay, and Dr. Emily Markovich-Morris. Thank you both for being here so much with us today.
2: Thank you, Kelly. Thank you so, for having us.
1: Today we're going to be talking about uh, Tanzania and Ghana and first-generation students, and we're going to start off uh, with talking about the contextual factors, because up until now we have hopped around the world a little bit, but uh, we've been speaking primarily about uh, European countries and also other kind of Western countries, so this this is a different scenario, and we'd really like to get a better understanding of what some of those contextual factors are for first-generation students in Ghana and uh, Tanzania. So, Millicent, we're going to go ahead and start with you, and then we'll move on to Emily.
3: Thank you very much once again for that. I would want to situate the contextual factor in three layers in terms of the experience of generation uh, students in the Global South, but specifically to Ghana. So first is the historical and opinion that college access was not the norm for many people, right? So we are coming from a historical context where college was a preserve to run the colonial wheel. In terms of people working and fueling the work of our, our colonizers, and so access was limited to a few. Fast forward, I would say that it still persists, and it's still the reality that, unlike the global north, where going to college is a, a, a right to pass a right of passage, in many African countries, and especially also in Ghana going to college is still a preserve of a few, and it has cultural implications. It has, I mean, culturally, for a long time, girls, for instance, were not allowed to go to school, right? And so with these uh, backgrounds, there's still so many people who do not get access to college, and that also creates the additional layer that For the few who then have access, navigating college is still a problem because they are not coming from a background, both family, societal background, where college is the norm. So being able to navigate college then becomes a second barrier that they would have to figure out. And So these are the experiences that first generation students who are the first in their families to go must contend with. First, finding means to gain access. And once they gain access, how to navigate the whole college environment becomes a second layer. Great. Thank you so much for
1: giving kind of that, the overview there. I'm going to hand it off to Emily to go ahead and add any other contextual factors, perhaps from Tanzania or, or otherwise.
2: I think what Millicent said is really true also in the context of Zanzibar, Tanzania, which has a similar colonial and educational history, albeit some nuances. But I think another thing to add on to what Millicent was saying of and just recognizing that historically education, secondary and higher education, really there was a large examination process and selection for a few to fill limited spaces. And so that context historically is really important, even to till today. And in the context of Zanzibar, where I've been working with young people in three very distinct geographical areas, there are those young people living in urban areas, those living in rural areas, and those what we call um, in Swahili, the Ngambo areas, which are working class areas outside of the the large urban settings. And I think even within this, historically, rural children have had the least access with urban kids having more access to secondary school and higher education. This really persists today, and I can see it with the the research that I've been co-leading with all of these young people that for first-generation students in the rural areas means also not just higher education, but for many of them are still first-generation secondary school students. They're the first in their family to navigate and to go through secondary school. So I think Millicent's point of really unpacking what first-generation mean is really important with young people, but recognizing that the histories of where education access was laid are still really influential into who has access, but not just who has access, but who is able to um, survive schooling, who is able to transition into other levels of schooling, uh, but also the importance of of what we'll talk later about the collective agency of working with others and their families, aunts, uncles, neighbors, religious leaders, siblings, teachers, to really navigate schooling within their their geographical as well as their, their families.
1: Right. And I think we'll probably, I think we're going to touch on this more later on, but just the concept of being the first generation in secondary school, as you mentioned, is perhaps something in, in some of these areas that we've covered so far, people would not have thought of. So to go on to post-secondary education, you're so far beyond. I mean, it, it, it'll it be interesting to kind of think about, does, I'm curious to to think about, does being first generation and secondary school give you some sort of skill set that maybe helps a little bit later on. I don't know, we can we can touch on that. But the other thing that is interesting from what you're both saying is that the the rural piece as well. I mean no matter where we look there's there's still that divide and more of the students who end up in post secondary education are from the the urban areas which makes sense of course that's where the that's typically where the institutions are where the resources are the jobs kind of a common trend that I think that we see a lot of, we're seeing in these discussions so to get into the research that you both did in the study that you both conducted Uh, During your PhD uh, studies or program, you looked at two different capacities of first-generation students in Ghana and in Zanzibar, um, and these were the capacity for action and the capacity to hustle. So I'm going to ask if Emily can describe for us the capacity for action and if Millicent can describe the capacity to hustle and what it means to possess these two capacities, especially as a first-generation student in this context.
2: Yeah, and Melissa and I were really cognizant when we were thinking about uh, really centering the experiences of first generation students, whether it be in secondary or higher education, really thinking about it from a global south and theoretical lens as well as looking looking at how we wanted to use notions and concept based on what we were co-researching with the young people that we've been working with. And part of this was really finding how young people navigate education. And within that, we looked at capacity for action and capacity to hustle. And for us, capacity for action, we took from Sabah Mahmood's work on collective agency and capacity for action, but really looking at how relationships within families, within communities, that collective agency, but also this notion of young people acting when the conditions permit. So resisting some of the factors that were either excluding them from school and pushing them out of school, but resisting, meaning sometimes they were overt ways of resisting, and sometimes they were less obvious ways of resisting and and action but it's that kind of navigating with others and their families their schools their communities as well as amongst their peers but also being really thinking carefully about how they resist and what ways they need to act in in lieu of the environments and the precarities and the uncertainties that they were constantly navigating in in their experiences so i'll hand to me need to talk a little bit about the capacity to hustle
3: Right. Thanks. Thanks, Eddie. And so, moving on to the capacity to hustle, it was really interesting to hear these young people using that their experiences of how they were navigating school, and so the, the main persons. The, the existing literature that we focus on was the work done by them using um, youth, working with youth in rural, other slums in, in Kenya, and hustling really describing the complexity of experiences that these youth already have and they they use in different contexts, right? So what experiences used to persist in moments of precarity, where they had to deal with hardships but bringing on board experiences that had worked for them and applying it to the different contexts where they had to struggle. And so whereas the Global North really looked at the concept of hustling more uh, in a negative lens, these youth were using hustling to describe the multiple ways that they sort of figured things out, right? Through previous experiences, through communities that had been helpful to them, but really through pulling together the various agencies that enabled them to get through school. So that's how come we, we combine the two concepts of the capacity to, to hassle and then the capacity to, to navigate the various educational spaces that they, they took on and occupied. And I
2: might add um, that we also were intentional in centering capacity for action and capacity hustles, navigational capacities, of avoiding using terminology from more global North developmental psychology terms like grid and resilience and persistence that you might hear in in reference to first generation students in the United States or in other countries in mm-hmm. Europe and Australia. But we were really trying to focus on what were the stories of young people and their families and their communities saying mm-hmm. and really the concept of action and hustling and this constant negotiation of the the realities that they were trying to struggle with to stay in school, to get to school, to get through school were mm-hmm. really important. And so it's also really saying that uh, while terms like grit and resilience might work for looking at the in- individual's experience of navigating as mm-hmm. a first generation student, that for us in the global south, it was really important not to just center it in an individualistic or a developmental psychology, but more of a sociological framing. Um, and so the action and the hustle really came from. Um, the, the the stories of the young people, but also a lot of the great theoretical work of thinking about experiences and how that's different for young people in the global South.
1: I'm going to try kind of maybe separating them, at least in my mind, based on what you both have said. And, you know, let me know if I'm on the right track. <laughs> but it's kind of, in my mind, grit and resi- resilience are kind of just about continuing to push through. But when, Millicent, you described hustling. Mm-hmm. It sounded it was it seemed like it was about, you know, pulling from almost like a toolbox that you have, whether it was mm-hmm. your community members or just, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of skill that you had learned at some point. And you go, okay, what can I apply here when I meet this
3: challenge? Is that is that Me? one way of describing absolutely, it absolutely absolutely and and the distinguish another distinguishing factor is to look at the fact that concepts like grade and resiliency it's individual right it gives the assumption that on your own you will be able to do it whereas this you talked about two box, but it's a combo of several things whether it's through their communities whether it's through their family whether it's through their school system it's several factors and not just dependent on them. So resources that they have in a toolbox that they pull in terms of any barrier that they faced and then using those skill sets to begin the particular situation that they gave.
1: Definitely. I, I, when I read the article, I really liked this, this definition of, of hustle and the way that you were applying it. In your research and i think that you've already touched on this emily but if if millicent if you want to add anything to why it's so important to kind of to redefine these terms um mm-hmm. and put them in the context of young people in the global south south
3: why why is that important i mean for for us and when we were doing this with that ability to put it in First of all, the historical backgrounds that these individuals, uh, young people were navigating was very critical, right? If you look at the Global South, it depends on the community. A lot of the environments that they navigated were not individualized, right? And secondly, theoretically, we were very intentional to place it in Global South theories that explain the realities of the individuals that we work with rather than applying a global north theory, which is, I mean, well established in the literature. And and maybe this will be a good point to share my own experience where I wanted to use the the word hustling. It faced a lot of resistance from, you know, the team of faculty that I worked with just because of the fear of how hustling in the global North is, is viewed, but also because in the academy, it's not well, it wasn't well established, right? And so the pushback was, you know, it's not a theory that is, it's recognized. However, whilst it wasn't a recognized theory, it was a concept that bet in the narratives of the young people. And so thought through two factors, how do we place it in a historical context, of the realities of the young people. And secondly, in terms of theory, how do we apply this as a framework to understand and unpack the experiences of the young people? So that was why it was very important that we redefine these concepts in the realities of the participants that we work with. Right.
1: And I think to remind myself and, and just inform the audience, in your study uh, and definitely let me know if uh if i'm getting it right here but millicent you interviewed students first generation students in ghana uh and Mm -hmm. emily you did it was kind of like a in my mind it was it was almost like theater or something like that but it was a space where these stories of the students kind of emerged and maybe it was a little bit more of a creative space if i'm remembering correctly
3: So, um, I mean, I would say yes, interviews, but it was more of a narrative. So I did a narrative inquiry where I co-created or co-constructed the narrative of the experiences, the educational experiences of college students, right? And in this narrative, they shared their uh, their experiences navigating their education at the point of college, Right, I mean, from from primary school from as far back as they remember, all the way to college. So whilst Emily's ended and focused on on secondary school, my participants looked at their entire educational experiences at the point, you know, where I interviewed them, which was them completing their college education.
1: Right. And Emily, could you maybe fill us in a little bit on on the a few more of the details of how kind of your methodology or the the way you were also getting narratives from, from students?
2: Yeah. So this started out, it's mixed methods research. So it started um, back in 2007 with a large group of young people entering grade one. So at the start of their their education and following those that had also been in preschool um, to really understand factors that pushed them out of school. So factors that that uh, force them to stop going to school or those that help them get through um, school and go on to become a first-generation secondary school student. And now I've been following them now through the end of post-secondary. So whether or not they are first-generation university students or they're in the workforce to understand all of those factors. But a big part of it, the research is ongoing um, work with young people, 19 rural youth and 22 of the urban youth to really understand their experiences as they have written it and if they want to tell the stories and so it was interactive um, workshops and theater and co construction of theater performances that they put together for their peers as well as ongoing telling their own story of their experiences in school and so it really does show not only those experiences of young people that become first secondary graduates and first secondary uh, students in higher education but also those that don't have the opportunity that get pushed out of school and understanding all of those experiences that they and all of the ways that they hustle and how the ways that their capacity to act and and what influences those experiences in their lives and so what
1: what narratives did you find that were emerging in this study that of course, it came out to to emerge these the concept of hustling emerged, but what were maybe some more concrete examples? Um, there were kind of three sets of of hustling, I think that were defined. So getting to getting by and getting through what what does this mean exactly?
2: Sure, I can talk a little bit about our thinking on this, and again, kind of going back to our hopes of really centering it in the lives and the lived experiences. So, Millicent and I are both working with narrative inquiry, so studying the stories and the experiences of young people, but really also then trying to understand that in the in the in the context of their communities, of the context of their schools, their families, um, and so this idea of moving from the more individual, looking at grit and resilience, if, if students have more grit or have more resilience, then they'll be able to finish and become graduates, um, but really putting the onus more on the systemic and the structural challenges that, that they were facing and what helping us think about as educators, policymakers, young people, families, community leaders, what is the collective work we have to do to also understand the experiences, but also to understand and hone in on the creative creativity and innovation and all of the things that young people are already doing to navigate these spaces. And so we have grouped them into really getting to getting by and getting through with the intention of helping us understand these different layers of the struggle to become Um, A first generation graduate in a higher education institution or in a secondary school. And for us, the getting to was really looking at the the physical access to school and how do young people get there? Because we often talk about access in terms of enrollment, but there's a lot of labor that young people have to do to actually physically get to school. And so we highlight some of those examples in the research um, and the work that we've been doing in the stories of young people. And for example, in Ghana and Zanzibar, all of the students had some type of story of really like the physical getting in to school whether it was walking or getting into a trotro adala public transport to get to school what the things that they had to navigate for example Larson in Ghana really having to negotiate with a trotro driver to let him ride and tutoring his child outside of school so that he could get a free ride to school in Zanzibar it was pushing their way in negotiating with where to sit how to get in and for girls uh, also they wrote and performed stories about uh, harassment and feeling uh, the the safety issue of physically getting to school walking to school taking public transport as a young woman and what that how to keep themselves safe and so we wanted to honor that physical struggle of accessing school but all the creative ways also that they they figured out how to get to school safely and to pay attention to kind of the physical and the economic struggles to get there getting by for us was really how the things that young people did to stay in school uh, particularly the different economic and creative ways that they had to engage in uh, making money to be able to pay for fees and to pay for food and to pay for clothing and other needs that they had in the context of often a large number of them living in in Circumstances where poverty, where their families didn't have all the resources to help pay for all of these, so young people having to to help create ways and to find creative ways to make money to pay for their needs. So we have some stories, for example, Musa in Zanzibar, where he started and stopped school many times to fish and earn money and to go back and forth to leaving and coming back to school. Um, Another student in Ghana really having to to pound cassava flour outside of school hours at a small restaurant. And for girls often wasn't necessarily outside of the home, but the the heavy household chores that they wrote about and talked about of having to care for siblings and cooking and all these other things that took up their time and took their time away from studying and concentrating on their studies that they had to do. And so often with the hustling, it was doing more than one of these activities and being creative and doing this with peers or siblings or starting and stopping at various points when they needed to earn money quickly and creatively in lieu of having a formal job that they could rely on or having um you know some type of safety net in their family that they could access and for the third part getting through is is really is really talking about the social emotional battle to to really Cope with the uncertainty and the precarity, but it's really, really looking at surviving school. And oftentimes we talk about access in terms of the economic or the physical access to school, but we don't spend enough time on the emotional part of what young people and the mental health and the other struggles that young people endure in this in this process of really trying to become a first generation graduate. And for the the context of getting through this meant going through and and processing and pushing through self-doubt, this imposture syndrome of being the first in your family to go on to this, this level of education and the mental gymnastics that that young people had to, to go through to feel a sense of belonging that it was they were meant to be there um, and also just to manage the many crises and traumas that they experienced. Young people talking about uh, the death of a parent and what that was like to try to keep studying or a prolonged illness or a family that was breaking up or other circumstances in their lives that that it really created this um, need for them to hustle and work together with their peers and their families to really get through this social emotional battle. In one case, a student in Ghana, Adam talked about also just this humiliation and pushing through. And he wrote that I hustled a lot, especially in my first year. Each time I raised my hand to speak in class, people were always laughing at me. I don't know why they still laugh. So presentations were difficult for me. Maybe I don't speak good English or perhaps when I speak, my voice is funny. I don't know, but I still have to overcome that. So this idea that sometimes not even understanding fully the experience, but knowing that, um, that this this labor of even being bullied or or feeling less than also in this this high stakes examinations and this culture of high stakes examination that put a lot of pressure on young people and in Zanzibar the young people performed a lot and wrote a lot of, uh, and performed their theaters, their vignettes about the extreme anxiety and depression and the fear they felt around grades and how their bodies and their minds and, and the depression and the labels and all of, um, these things that we don't really put enough attention to, uh, as we're thinking you either pass the exams or not, but it takes a large toll on children, um, in this process. And when they don't pass the, and that carrying that, that label of failure um really endures as well as the young people have have talked about. So that's really what the getting to buy and through really looks at is the not just the physical and the economic, but also the emotional and the social pressures.
1: And so even with the social pressures you, the support or just the role of the community has come up so many times already in in this discussion. So what is the role of the community in a first generation student's experience? Their own community, their families, um their peers, etc. And how do they re- rely or pull on how how's the community I guess p- part of their toolbox? So, uh mm-hmm. Millicent, we'll we'll turn to you for
3: this one. Right. Right. Thanks. Thanks um Emily for- for for that very comprehensive response also to the previous question. Many a times the literature has positioned first generation students especially those also coming from low income background as not having you know the social capital which you know authors like Bordeaux places as a very negative effect that they do not have but in actual fact you know uh, first generation students have their community and they rely and pull their social capital from those communities and one author that talks about it really comprehensively is Yoso who talks about the whole concept of community cultural capital that students coming from these populations draw from, right? So they may not have an immediate family member who has been to college before, but they have an uncle right? They have that person in the community, in the extended family who has been to college before. So they rely on that. So whether it's financial resources, whether it's the knowledge capital, whether all forms of capital that they need to navigate college, they pull from it from the church, from you know the family, from the school system. They figure it out. I think figuring out is the word. They figure it out and find out who within my community who within my social network has what i need and how do i draw from that so their ability to look beyond their immediate family which tends to be the the reality of you know people coming from college going background my kids for instance will draw from me right um when they need information about college because they have a mom who has been to college, has a PhD, works in a college environment. They have a dad who has a master's, works in a college environment. But that kid who doesn't have actually will come to me that extended family member in the village will come and live with me when they are going to college because I'm that auntie who understands how college works. And so whether it's their pastor who understands, they go beyond their immediate family. So you see that for that one person, everybody is chiming in. They are pulling resources from all their networks to be able to figure out and navigate um, what they need to survive and succeed within college. So in effect, community plays a really critical role in the first generation students' life because they they rely on that to be able to be successful. That's it's super interesting. I'm curious
1: if when people go reach out to their communities, what is kind of the relationship with the community members when they they ask for this assistance?
3: Is it I,
1: can you describe that in any capacity? As,
3: absolutely. I mean, for instance take the church right the church is one social space where everybody's in the business of everybody so for instance i will go to church and everybody knows that my daughter is about to go to college and that social responsibility it's not just on me but the fa- pastor has a responsibility feels that strong sense of responsibility to see what can i do for that child to be successful because they see that child not just for me but belonging to the bigger community. So it's the investment, it's not just for them because they are directly related to them, but it's that collective sense of responsibility to let that child succeed. So I'll give you an example. I had a student a couple of years ago who was the first in his entire village to go to college, right? To come to my university. And when he graduated and went back, there was a whole debacle held in his his honor in his village the entire you know chief all the chiefs in the village came all the families came and they had a big deba in his honor guess what when he was coming to school a similar conversation took place and everybody chimed in whether it's uh, an uncle buying his shoe Another auntie buying his bag. So his success completing college is celebrated within the entire community. And that's the role that the community plays. And the influence that he had now on all the children within that village to also aspire to go to college is the implication and the reward of coming together to ensure that this one kid succeed. So that's how communities work right it's not the individual responsibility of the family alone but it's a collective responsibility to ensure that that kid helps i mean that kid succeeds um when he gets access so it's very common for instance to get the school fees of one child being paid by the entire community the church will contribute his uncles and aunties will contribute they will sell a cocoa farm to be able to get the money, all to be able to support this child who has made it to the point of being the very first, whether in the family or the entire community, to go to college. So that's how communities rally together. And that is the social capital available to many first generation students, which they use them to succeed when they get to college.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, that's, I think, a perfect piece of kind of anecdotal evidence. And it's it's kind of inspiring, really, in a way. So, so, I'm curious to know, apart from from the the piece of kind of the per, what people, what first generation students are personally experiencing. Uh, you've done all this research. What are now the practical implications of the research moving forward? And we'll start with Emily's input, and then have Millicent's.
2: Yeah, I think I would think about it in three overlapping ways, and I think for policymakers. I think what we're trying to do is really push towards framing the realities of young people in a more global self context, but also really thinking about youth and, and young people uh, from an assets-based lens as opposed to more of a deficit. What don't they have versus all the creative ways that they're using to hustle and to act and it's allowing youth educators, families, organizations, governments to really frame their own experiences, whether in Ghana or in Zanzibar in education and create recommendations and solutions that are contextually based. So also the stories and the context are really important because we don't um, want to emphasize that, you know, there's a one there's a one solution for all or a cookie cutter solution, but we really want to, to understand uh, um, and understand youth experiences and center youth experiences to show the nuances between even within a community, rural, urban, or even with households, there are nuances. And so understanding that's really important. And I think we can't emphasize enough youth centered recommendations and youth centered research in our work. I think for practitioners, it's also pushing for recognizing the, the emotional labor that young people put into schooling and to becoming a first generation student. And so we often as practitioners rely a lot on examinations to measure quality of education. And that's a kind of our standard and our global standard, whether it's um, for assessing a system or assessing a school or a community, but this has a toll on youth and this high pressure to be the first generation to pass your exams. This does have an emotional toll on on their youth, but also their families and their educators. Um, And so being cognizant in the work that we're doing of thinking about from this perspective, of a young person, all the things they have to do to get to and by and through schooling is really important. And thirdly, really an academic audiences and research audiences is encouraging ourselves and pushing ourselves to, to think beyond some of the, the ways that we've t- typically framed and understood youth experiences and navigating. And so Millicent gave a good example of really the concept of social capital being one that is constantly used um, in, in youth research. But is that youth-centered? Is that really coming from what young people are saying? And we're arguing that hustling and capacity to action is really helps us understand their stories. And so letting also ideas and notions come from the stories from which young people are are writing and listening more. I think we're also hoping that through this, that we're keeping, we're paying attention and challenging and disrupting some of the gatekeeping in all of these spaces. And for Millicent, she's really pushed, as she noted, the idea and the concept of hustling. And that needs to be an important concept that can be used in in higher education research. And for me, it's really pushing against um, the academic and policymaker audiences that have uh, really keep reinforcing this idea of school dropout, which I use in my work as school pushout. That it's not, it's not the fault or the choice of young people, but it's the factors in the system. And so for us, it's also being attention, being being willing to create the way that we're talking about research and the way that we're talking about young people by looking at the stories and the narratives.
3: Millicent, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, I guess Emily has said it all. The only they now add is the whole idea of looking at these populations with a more asset-based lens rather than a deficit-based lens, because usually the the narrative is as if they don't even have any capacity, they don't have any agency to act and take action. And from what we saw in our research, they do have that agentic ability and they actually utilize it. So really reframing the experiences that these young ones have and understanding that they have the capacity to act on things that concerns them they have the capacity to contribute to their development they are not passive recipients of all these development aids that we send their way but they actively want to participate and they've demonstrated that they can participate and so really looking at them from the the assets lens rather than the distance is what I would add.
1: And what about from your position uh, in working in student affairs? Is this research something that you have been able to use when working with um, first generation students at your institution, and and uh, you know figuring out what they need or or however it is you Mm -hmm. uh, work with them?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, many of the things that Emily mentioned are things that I'm in a capacity as a senior um, administrator and. So I am able to influence policy, but also programming. My college, for instance, works. um, We have about 50% of our student population coming from first generation and low income backgrounds. And so one size definitely does not fit all when you have such a split population. When we are drawing policies, we've consciously been able to to look at who am I living or what are the realities or potential barriers that this policy can create just because of their backgrounds. And how do we as an institution be more intentional in recognizing and acknowledging these backgrounds and, you know, not, coming up with one-size policy that would further put barriers in, in their hour uh, of obligating and succeeding. And so now I've been very fortunate to be able to implement many of these findings to influence, first of all, policies that we put together to help uh, them navigate. So, I mean, whether it's in study abroad, for instance, I know that I can expect that, When it comes to going abroad, these students will have basic things and one practical ways. For instance, if you are heading to the U.S., you need to pay what they call the CVS fee, right? And CVS, typically, U.S. wouldn't take credit card coming from Ghana, right? Um, But even then, that low-income student doesn't have a credit card in the first place. They're only um, payment from the U.S. They don't have families living in the U.S us. And so if we are going to expect that every student going abroad will have a family in the U.S. to pay their service fee for them, we will be putting a huge barrier in the, the, the way of our students who may not be able to have those facilities. And so at the university, we have taken on that responsibility of clearing that for them. And so in various ways, these nuances that potentially can put barriers, we have a very intentional way of always asking when you are designing police or programs, who can I potentially be living out or putting further barriers and how do I remove that? And many of the things came from doing this research, we gave the practical experiences of how they were, you know, navigating the university environment. Which then is influencing many of our policies and programs that we run. So, absolutely, being in Student Affairs, I've had the amazing opportunity to implement some of these policies and some of these experiences that were really eye-opening for us.
1: Yeah, I think it's amazing when you can take research, especially that's this. You know, I don't want to say it's not granular, but this kind of uh, specific and and really influence people's lives with it. I think that's just so cool, and it's really thank you both for the work that you have done on this on this research and that you continue to do, and for sharing it with us here. I think that this is it's been really great to dig into it more, and I feel like we have only just touched the surface. Um, so I really hope that people who listen to this episode who want to learn more who are curious to chat more about it will you know find the the proper channels and and reach out and ask the ask their questions but we have to wrap, wrap up because of, of time of course um and so i want to ask both of you a final question which we ask all of our guests so who was someone or was there a specific experience which was particularly influential in your own higher education journey or maybe in the development of this research or uh, to get to where you are now, something along those lines, um, a, a person or an experience. And Emily, we'll start with you to answer this question.
2: Yeah, I would start with the young people uh, and the stories of young people, my own family members, my students, youth co-research that I've been working with, but really their their ability and their the assets they apply to really navigate education and to, and to really fight against push out. And do, that has really taught me a lot in my own journey as an educator, someone that works with research to policy, um, but also inspiring me to keep going to school. And I think colleagues and peers like Millicent, um, we navigated higher education as parents, which is no easy feat in higher education. And so navigation with people like Millicent have also pushed me to, to, to really think about being in higher education and being an older student in higher education. And I would say also educators. I think back to my um, my undergraduate experience and my advisor, Musafiki Manasale, who really saw that I was not comfortable in higher education. I didn't have the same ways of thinking about, ways of knowing and encourage me to do it my own way and to really use my assets of arts-based research and as an artist, as an activist, to really think about the way that I showed up and to really have the courage to work through imposter syndrome in, in higher education. So I also think it's the educators that that helped build our confidence. And
1: Millicent, who is somebody who has influenced you or what was an experience that did so?
3: I guess um, for me, it's my own experience being the first in my family to go to college. I come from a, a family of four. who lost our dad very early years in our, our lives and we really had to struggle, right? We really had to hustle um, to be able to make it through college. and. The various ways that the struggle, the various forms that those struggles took took place, was what encouraged me when I saw populations similar, you know, or reliving my own experience when I, I I went to my undergrad, and and so that's what influenced me to be in that whole space of student affairs and. I've always asked myself, how can I make it better for others like me who are also trying to figure it out? If I have figured it it out, I I feel a strong sense of responsibility to pay it forward through my research, uh, but also through influencing spaces within the student services field who are really critical in impacting students when they step out of the classroom. So my own experiences struggling through age and, and um, the various communities that supported me to come out of that and succeed is what has influenced me to also be in the space to continue to impact, you know, uh, students who are coming from similar backgrounds like me. And I've had the good fortune of working with colleagues like Emily who. We've been so lucky to do a lot of, you know, our schooling together as colleagues, but also we share a lot um, in common. So colleagues like Emily um, and the work they do, the passion, the the various ways they challenge the status quo is what also inspires me to go after concepts which are non-traditional, right? I know Emily was one of my champions when I said I was going to con-hustle when I was facing Resistance. She was one of the she together with our dear friend Anna were one of the few people who would buy me to navigate that whole space. And now Hassling is a theoretical concept which is being championed and gradually gaining ground in the field. So two things: my own experiences, colleagues who have helped me, and the communities that supported me for me. Places that sense of responsibility to pay it forward to other um, students who are coming from similar backgrounds, like 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 mine.
1: You're you're living the research, and in, in some regard, uh, that's what it sounds like. You have your tools in your toolbox, and <laughs> um, so thank you both for sharing those uh, answers, the, your reflections on that. Um, I love asking this question because. People uh, bring up sometimes very touching things, and I think that I I heard a bit of that in in your answer, Millicent and um, Emily. I love that you brought up uh the youth and and that and the influence of that population and your work and and around you um, that has really influenced you. So thank you both so much for your time today, um for your answers, for your thoughts, uh for the research and the work that you do.
3: It has been a pleasure to have you on Thesis. Thank you Absolutely. so much. Yeah. Absolutely, it's been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: On our next episode, join us in a conversation about the roles of community and student activism and first-generation students' experiences in Sao Paulo, Brazil. We will be joined by Dr. Matutsi Carmo, who holds a PhD in social anthropology from the Universidade de Sao Paulo. Dr. Charles Klein, an associate professor at Portland State University in the United States, and Thais Tariba, doctoral student at the University of Sao Paulo, who facilitated the Portuguese to English translations during the episode. If you liked what you listened to on Thesis today, please follow the podcast and leave us a rating or a comment. Links to relevant work by our guests and their contact information can be found in the show notes. Today's thesis episode does not take position on the issues discussed on the podcast. Opinions expressed on this episode are solely those of the guests or hosts. This podcast is produced and edited by Ekaterina Korinska, Ayla Rubinstein, Tracy Waldman, Kelly Davis, and Maria Angeles Hidalgo. Original music is produced by Petter Strom. Thanks for listening to
3: Thesis. We'll talk to you next time.